Hello. How's your quarantine? My quarantine is fine. How is your quarantine? Hmm. We should have like a shorter version of that, like a greeting we can give to each other, like on, on the street, you know? It would be uh, some kind of Quaker if you just said, good quarantine. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going fine. Can we shorten it up? Can we hit, can we hit it up a little? Good corn? I don't know. That's, <laughs> that's also the name of the fake meat product my daughter eats sometimes. Corn? Q-U-O-U-O-U-R-N? I don't know. It's some terrible. Is it based on corn? I don't think so. I think it's like soy. It always reminds me of like when uh, on science fiction programs, when aliens are like infesting your spaceship or you enter a derelict spaceship and you wonder what happened and it turns out there's aliens and stuff there, that there's this sticky glop all over the walls but not not just like snot looking but more like like dried and hardened mm -hmm. kind of like you know like snot. crusty but gotten yeah. into all the corners yeah that's food, what food this, grade snot yeah yeah but like yeah, but like hard and crusty though <laughs> like 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 it has some rigidity like little a little bit of a cement quality to it because it had hardened there like that it's you could chip away at it. Anyway, okay, that's I gotta, what... I gotta look this up. Q-U-O-R-N. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about the, the spelling. Let me try it. Okay. Oh, yeah, there we go. Oh, oh I see. Okay. Oh. Oh, boy, look at that. They have, you can discover a variety of delicious products. Is it, like, mushroom-based? I, I forget. Um, I don't I don't know. Oh, look, uh, John, it says right here that... Uh, Mycelium? Is that what... <laughs> No, no, no. That's <laughs> that's your pyloric valve. It says here that it makes uh, quote perfect lasagna. Mm, yeah, I have had uh, dairy-free lasagna that was surprisingly convincing because the dairy is providing a lot of texture. Yeah, like it was. It was replaced with soy-based white granules. Mm -hmm. Sure. And there's just so much other stuff going on in there that it, it mostly pulls it off. The problem is, of course, the, the cheese on the top. As I was leaving uh, to, to come visit with you here, um, I, I heard an exchange that I couldn't believe, which was my wife said, um, hey, uh, you want to try uh, edamame noodles? And she said, sure. And I thought, edamame noodles? It's noodles made out of soybeans? Yeah, you can make noodles out of anything. You just cut it into long, thin strips, and then uh, people who can't have regular noodles... Convince themselves that they're eating noodles. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad it all exists. I was just surprised that she, you know, agreed to it so quickly. I'll get the I'll get the report. Well, you know, des desperate times, right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, no, I, we're having good corn, pretty much. Uh, it's uh, I don't know, man. I uh, I have again. Let's just set aside all of the things. We're very fortunate. Thank you. Thank me for my service. Um, but, you know, I gotta admit, man, one day out of five, one day out of six, I'll just have kind of a rough few hours. And I had that today. What kind of crisis are you having? Mm, it's that this is, I'm not expecting your sympathy or your empathy. or But you God get it whether you want it or not. No, Deal God, with it. God forbid your friendship. But um, no, you know what it is? It's that I, I've got a bunch of bookmarks that I check in on, usually once a day in the afternoon. Um, and um, of COVID things I'm looking in on. And, you know, I was just, I've been following a few of the different sites and I've been interested to see how they keep improving the way that the, the data is presented. And uh, I don't know, I guess, okay, so first of all, uh, I, like a lot of people, I hope, um, I've been <laughs> very concerned uh, about the desire to reopen things very quickly, especially mm -hmm. in places 
where they haven't even hit the peak yet. On top of all that, yesterday, IHME updated their data with that crazy new figure. There's the new figures on number of excess death, deaths that weren't counted. And I've been watching, of course, I watch California. I watch the U.S. In the last week or so, I've been really watching Iowa and Texas because it's two places that are being very aggressive about reopening, but where you're still seeing it's that terrible confluence of desire to reopen quickly combined with continual growth in uh, cases. So like, you know, I don't know. I just tweeted about this this afternoon, but like, it's just so, especially with the new data, you know, they, they reopened movie theaters a few days ago in Texas and the decline that they were seeing, and I know testing is good. Testing means more cases. I do understand that. But at the same time, you see this roller coaster of like, it was going up and up and up and then it went down and down and down and then it comes up and up and up. And yes, I know about periodic, periodicity or however you pronounce it. I know weekends, as with podcasts, you don't see as many. The point is, it goes straight back up in Texas. They're, no, they're not even near their peak. Huge amount of uncertainty at this point. I don't know. I guess my point being that, like, I, I don't, I'm not very, I'm t- still too shell-shocked and weirded out to be, to, like, fully address my emotions and my rationality about what this all really means. But, like, sometimes it makes me very, very sad and very, very frustrated. And I had a little bit of that day today. I feel great now. I had some pho. I want to visit with you. I want to hear about your corn. But yeah, like one day out of five, I'll just be like, damn, man, this, this sucks. This just, it just sucks. And it's just, seeing that number go up every day is killing me. And then on top of all, now we're going to, you'll hear this in, you know, whatever, eight days, but like they're going to try my dismantle the task force right around Memorial Day because I guess we're opening all the pools. I don't know. That's, uh, that's, that's my down day when I'm on, on the corn, you know? So part of this thing of like, uh, you have these, bookmarks that you check is like isn't that like part of a system to sort of decide look i know i want to look at it and i'm going to look at it but let me let me pick a time during the day when i say this is the time that i'm going to set aside to look at my things so you're not looking at them all day long am i correct in remembering this strategy um i mean that's how i used to be with news sites before i deleted Mm -hmm. all my news links but i mean also let me stipulate something here we're all different listeners you and me uh, and all of you. I hear the people who say, why do you watch the press conferences? I hear the people who say, why do you do this? Why do you do that? Whether or not you like my reasons, I do have my reasons. My aunt died this week. Okay. I'm not going to talk about it a lot, but like, uh, she died, uh, after being misdiagnosed with COVID. She had a stroke two years ago. She hasn't talked in two years <laughs> and they put her, um, she's been in a facility. And, um, when she tested positive, they put her in the ward with all the people who ha- did have COVID day later, they tested her again and said, whoopsie dipsie, you don't really have it. Um, but, you know, her health has been in decline for a long time. I don't, as far as I can tell, she did not die of COVID, but she did die uh, to, uh, yesterday. I'm sorry to hear that. Thank that's, you, man. Uh, but, okay, so, so why, why am I doing this? Because my life is filled with people with different levels of sensibility about how seriously to take this. Mm-hmm. And, and to quote something that somebody said, um, Farhad Manju uh, retweeted this the other day, um, and I just mentioned it today, um, you know, thinking that you can open all of these places is, it's a lot like saying that you're going to have a peeing area in the pool, with the implication being that that pool is not going to somehow move to different parts. Same thing as a smoking section, right? Smoking mm-hmm. and non-smoking, well, smoke does not know what section it's in, title. And so, you know, that, why am I doing that? I don't know. Part of it is it drives me crazy. Part of it is I'm pressing a bruise. And part of it also is I want to feel assured that we're all doing the right thing um, in our communities and that we will see a difference if we continue to do this well. And to, like, to continue to act like the United States 
is the size of Liechtenstein, and we can just make this thing go away with a couple weeks of going, I don't get sports. It's just, it's driving me bananas. So like, you know, my mom can't go visit my uncle now. My, my um, uncle couldn't visit his wife. And it's like, um, it's, it's, it's very personal for everybody. And, and I don't, I'm not trying to do this. I'm not trying to do a cranking on you here. I'm not trying to play the emotion card, but not you, not the listener, not anybody, but we all have our reasons why we do the dumb stuff we do. And one of those things is I try to find the best data I can to explain where this is going, what's going well and what's not. Now, unfortunately, at the end of the day or at the end of the browsing session, I still have to sit here, sit in the idea, wade in this idea that like it doesn't matter. <laughs> Because, you know, and that's the part I should, that's the part I should remember. The part I should remember is that, that this is hell, nor am I out of it. And it's not, I'm not going to come out of it going do to do. I guess, uh, I guess we'll just order in again. And I don't know. That's, so that's my corn. I have good days and bad days. And then some days I just get really, uh, really sad and a little bit, frankly, a little bit depressed, but, uh, mostly I'm doing great. I'm, uh, I'm making stuff, I'm doing things, moving my bowels, sleeping. How's your corn? I do wonder, I asked about, you know, whether you were uh, scheduling slash rationing your exposure to information. <laughs> yes. Because, because I think, like, everyone has a desire as to find out what's going on. It's the reason news exists, right? Because yeah. people want to know. If I eat enough of this news, I will have a complete diet of information that will, is, is it my, is my dining out on all this corn going to actually make this thing better? And the answer is probably not. Yeah, whether, whether it is or not, people want to know, like it's yep. a natural human instinct. I mean, it's it make it, people want to know for reasons that they can explain as rational and people want to know for reasons that they can't explain that are irrational. The bottom line is you want to know. Uh, and with so much information available on the internet these days, it is possible to just do nothing but consume that information. And I think anyone who spent a long time on the internet probably has come to the realization that's maybe not the healthiest way to be. The question is, what is the right amount for me to, you know, to like, and I think zero is not the right amount either. Like most people, <laughs> Zara, is it Zara suits? Yeah. Zara most, people can't, most people can't pull that off. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you can, some great, people are pulling but, it off all too well, in my opinion. Well, you know, they can just get the different information, mm-hmm. you know, like find see, You can also seek out information that will comfort you. Some people go with that. So people just want to look at cute animals, but I think all of us have certain feel a certain responsibility to have some minimal awareness when a crisis like this is going on, if only for our own welfare and the welfare mm-hmm. of our family. So I, you know, I keep up with the stuff in the same way that I keep up with everything, which is fairly haphazard. I don't really have a system, mm-hmm. uh, but I do consciously try to avoid pursuing it too much. And usually because like exactly what you said at the end of like, you get to the end of the thing and you realize, okay, well, I now I know that, and now what? Now what has right. changed? Is it what's yes. actionable? Uh, yeah. Exactly, but that doesn't change the fact that you still want to do it. So that, I basically go through that same cycle many times over. Sometimes I short circuit it and say, if I continue reading this article or pursue the links in it, is this an effective use of my time? Maybe not, but I do want to keep track of how things are going, just just to have an overall picture. Because if you don't, you could just wake up one day and things could be way worse. And I think about the whole ramp up to this. Like I'm glad I was as aware as aware as I was of the lead up i feel that way about many crises i yeah. one of the memories i have very vivid memories of uh driving to work uh listening to npr on the radio so this is a long time ago uh i used to have a longer car commute and i and i think this was pre-ipod or i don't know 
someone needs to look up the years. You'll be able to tell in a second, but mm-hmm. I'm so bad with dates. Anyway, this was George W. Bush hearing what he was doing the lead up to the Iraq War. 2003. And like I'd go I'd go to work yeah, every day probably 2003. in my car and NPR yeah, and hear this stuff. And every day I would just be just incredulous. I'd be like, what? Yeah. He's doing what? We He said what? Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't believe that. Like, <laughs> Banging it was on the going, steering wheel like Gene Hackman. Yeah. It's just, it, you know, like this, this just day after day. It was like, I can't believe this is going where it's going. How, how young and foolish I was, obviously. Like what has come after. And anyway, and uh, it was causing me anxiety. Right. But I think it, like, I'm glad that I was aware I didn't just wake up one day and the bombs are falling. I'm like, how did this happen? Yeah. It wasn't a total surprise, right? I, I, for me, I feel comfortable with that balance. I do want to be aware of what's happening big picture wise, even if it is concerning during that period of time. Same thing with the, the, the COVID stuff. I wasn't obsessively tracking it, but I was tracking it well enough. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you probably had a general sense of the trend line, that this is a thing that's not getting lower. It's not going down. Th- that I was upset that they weren't closing my kid's school, if you remember that episode. I that right? very much do. Because yeah. I felt like, look, like, you know, everyone should know where this is going by now. So let's not, you know, let's cut to the chase. And now we're in kind of the opposite side of that, where it's like, uh, you know, it's not safe to go back in the water, but some people want to. And, and like, in, in some respects, like, it's, it's uh, sad because it makes me sad because, like, I can understand the the motivation of the the individual lizard brain motivation is basically like look i haven't heard this is the lizard brain brain talking not me personally i haven't heard nor do i understand any kind of coherent plan for getting out of this and so i just short circuit it to well it can't go on like this and there's no plan for getting out of it mm-hmm. so why don't we just go back and just what like that it seems like the only alternative because there's no light at the end of the tunnel there's no like okay we are currently executing a plan we're on step four of 25 and here's what's uh, expected of you here's what's expected of us collectively uh and therefore like there's no people don't feel like there's a path that needs to be traveled it's just all they see is everyone's out of work no one has any jobs no one's doing anything i feel miserable i'm stuck at home mm-hmm. and what you know you hear them say it they say even even our idiot president, you know, like mm-hmm. can't go on like this forever. <laughs> Which is so annoying to hear from so supposed quote unquote leaders. Like, yeah, you should. It's, have it's a plan just so much. So much is going to come it. down to like, uh, apart from his reelection concerns, it's just he's so he's so goddamn bored right now. He's bored with the press conferences. He's bored with not being able to have rallies. And like you know, I, I in some ways I don't want to say that I'm sympathetic to that, but I do think understanding what drives him makes it much more easy or less difficult to understand why this is being handled so poorly. But at the same time, it's, it's almost like you're locked in a room and you go, oh man, this sucks. I don't want to be locked in a room. And so you, you try the door and the door doesn't work. And then like you, you get a little panicky, you come back later, the door doesn't work. So you're, you, you're, you're trying, you're trying the windows, you're trying all, all the things. And it's like, well, all I know is the thing that should work, but hasn't yet is that door. So like, how do we, how do we deal with that? You know, all we know is all the things that aren't working and the things that do work aren't working as fast as we would like. And I think that makes people a little bit irrational in deciding what the path forward is. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it's a typical stew of things so that for people to reaction, like people who wanted to, to not think about it, the, the inability, the base, I talk to my kids about this all the time, but like 
the basic inability to understand things that aren't in immediate and visible and so on and so forth. Like for kids, it's always like future consequences. Like why do I need to learn you, algebra? You, <laughs> yeah, or, or just like, you know, I, I want to stay up late. Oh, you'll be tired in the morning that, that wrapping your head around that concept that, you know, you do, you know, you have to wake up early for a thing. So even though you really want to stay up late now, you will actually regret it tomorrow. If you can get yourself into the headspace of you tomorrow, you can you can make a decision now that will make future you happier and making that connect is very difficult for kids. And it takes a lot of I mean, it's a little bit of the like, you know, maybe one of the most effective ways to be scared of the stove is to be burned by the stove. You, you spend so much effort trying to get your kid to not be burned by the stove because that's not ideal for anybody. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, like a little bit of burn on the stove, it's the same thing, I guess, that makes some people want to spank their kids. Maybe, maybe that's that's the jolt um, that you get out of that. My little brother's first word was hot mm -hmm. because he reached his hand up on the stove. Now he has a PhD. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Burrow. You can learn more about Burrow right now by visiting burrow.com slash diffs. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash diffs. Spring cleaning is the perfect time to get intentional about what goes into your space. This is such an important concept. And uh, review everything to see if it's op optimally functional. Like, you know, let's just say for the sake of argument, your couch. Ugh, gross, am I right? Have you opened that thing up lately? Totally disgusting. You should totally get a burrow couch because it has unique features that you will not find in any big box furniture store sofa or even in uh, other sofas that you can get online. It's literally unique. Stuff like, let's say, built-in USB chargers so your phone doesn't die as you lounge. Durable fabric that's naturally scratch and stain resistant. You can pick your fabric color, your leg finish, your armrest style and length, and you can even add a chaise lounge or an ottoman or both. And there are actually over 23,000 ways to customize your burrow. That, that hurts my brain right now. And you always get free one-week shipping and zero interest financing. That's cool. So Burrow just dropped their uh, their new solid wood, easy-to-hang wall shelves. Cool. Just like their couches, the new shelves are modular, so you can start with one and add uh, to it. If you need more space, you can store books, knickknacks, everything you need, anything that needs a place in your home. You, you put it on a shelf. It's Burrow. Uh, you know, I've told this story before, but it's true. I bought a Burrow couch with my own gosh dang money before they were ever a sponsor, and we've been very happy with ours. It's uh, having to go up several flights of steps with a couch is no fun. And uh, their couch arrives all in separate boxes. It's very easy to put together. It's, uh, I, uh, I think it's a good couch. I like it. Uh, so listen, right now you go to uh, burrow.com slash diffs, and you're going to get $75 off your purchase plus free one week shipping. You can see the site for details. That's B-U-R-R-O-W.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S for $75 off. You know, get off that couch you've been sitting on for so long. It's got butt all over it. Get a new one. You go to burrow.com slash diffs and you get a couch. Jeez. Our thanks to Burrow for supporting reconcilable differences and all of Relay FM. And we're back. Yes, yes, yes. I'll give you a technique I recommend for, for learning, but like, no, but yeah. you know, for, for people, you know, like people out there, like they don't, they don't hear or see a plan. They don't see a way out of it. If someone tells them what they want to hear and throws in a little bit of toxic masculinity, let's be tough guys. This isn't a big deal. Go, go, go. Mm -hmm. Like, and you, if you try to convince them later when you're dying alone in a hospital, you will regret this decision. 
you can't convince them that any more than you can convince your kid that they'll be tired tomorrow morning, right? Mm-hmm. And and honestly, doing it at an individual level doesn't work. Like, it's just a complete leadership vacuum. We don't have a plan. We're not acting on anything. We're just flailing with, with you know, the usual set of uh, random grifters taking advantage as much as they can to enrich themselves. Uh, and, you know, it's just, it's such a disaster. It's it's like, it's more of a, a disaster of a human organization then it is a disaster of, uh, you know, germs, <laughs> clearly, right? Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's such a great study because it is worldwide. You can literally look at all these other places and, you know, see, grade them on a curve. How well are you doing this area and that area? How many, how many, it's like war, I guess. How many war profiteers do you have? How are they affecting things? How do you have a plan for the war? Have you mobilized your, your country and your people and your resources in an effective way to help you in the war effort? Or is it just mass chaos, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we are doing incredibly poorly, and it's sad. I have, uh, to say the least, I've never been a fan of the notion of American exceptionalism. And I think it's gotten us into a lot of pretty terrible scrapes. Uh, if there's any single part, it's just not a great idea to think that you're fundamentally different than everybody else who's ever lived because of the continent that you were born on at a given time, okay? There's a lot of problems that could come out of that kind of thinking. QED, everything. Um, but, uh, the, the only, one of the only parts of American exceptionalism that I think had the potential for good is this idea that I'll say it, it's almost a Christian value of it is my, I am obligated to do the right thing to help people, whether or not it benefits me, because that's what I do, right? Let's, let's make it a little bit secular, but you know, it's just that idea of like, you know, America has been given a lot. And so we, um, should be doing a lot. And you know, you can be mercantile about this and say, yeah, well, the Marshall Plan was great. Well, the Marshall Plan was great, but it also gave us enormous power over a lot of continents. It's just the part that's killing me right now is that as we've abandoned all the things that certain people have considered American exceptionalism over the last 50, 60, 70 years, as we've abandoned all of the stuff that costs money or effort or inconvenience, we've continued to cling to the mythologies of American exceptionalism. And I think you can go straight back to February and all the times that that, that somebody in, in expensive clothes got on TV and said, this will never come to America. What made you think this will never come to America? The, the, uh, the president's current press secretary, there's a very famous interview where I think she all but says, Mr. Trump, sir, we'll make sure that the China virus never, never comes here. Um, and that it, it's really a bummer to have abandoned all the hard work of uh, the American exceptionalism nonsense. Uh, we, we let go of all that, but we still keep the, the gold key that lets us believe that we're different and won't be affected by things that are, that are hurting all the people of color <laughs> or just all the people who are different from us. And that, that really sucks. Yeah, even those people who are saying that, obviously they're saying out of, out of self-interest, right? But also they have, they're affected by the same thing of like, if I say it, I can make it true. I put the blanket over my head, you can't see me. Uh, yeah. I want this to be the case because if it's not the case, it will make my supposed job harder. I'd rather just hang out here and, and you know, buy expensive things for my office and make money on book deals. But I certainly don't want to have to solve any problems. So if I just say it's not going to be a big deal and then hide any of the fact that it's, you know, like... It must be such a disappointment that there is this reality that they've had to, like, the hardest job that our supposed leadership has had to do is they had to sit down and have a bunch of meetings and figure out, yeah, I guess we have to think of something. So what is the best way to to reframe this and move the goalposts? It's so boring and expensive to fix your teeth, America. You know, like, wow, do I really have to keep, we're still on this? You know. 
And they had some good people in the room as they came up like, look, if we just if we just set the, the goal now and say, look, if it's anything less than 200,000 people, I'm a genius and that'll give us another few months. And so that was a good, you know, they had that meeting like, boy, that was hard work. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they did that. And so good job. All good set job. we did a great can, job. They can, you know, mission accomplished. You can disband everything. Everything's fine. Yeah, I got the call yesterday morning from my mom and, um, about, you know, we've been obviously going back and forth about this. She's in constant contact with my uncle. And, uh, so anyway, I, I'm not sure I was, I'm not sure that all of my grazing, my information graves, grazing made the situation better, but I would like to think it did. And she was understandably inconsolable. And, um, and she was saying like, I don't know how I'm going to go see them. And, and my, my mom is in her now past mid eighties and she has a probably, I don't know, two to 16 of exactly the kinds of preexisting conditions that are harmful to people to get this. Anyway, just a way of saying like, I hope I was helpful in this because it felt helpful. And, and, and she, she said, I don't know how I'm going to go see Bill. And, um, you know, go remember Shirley. And, um, I said, mom, um, it's so important that you not fly across the United States right now to do this. I said, I know you don't want to hear that. And I know you're just aching with what you wish you could do right now. But I was like, it's really, it's so, so important that you not do that. And I'm so sorry. This sucks so much. There's nothing I can say, but please, what I'd said was, please don't do this. And it was really sweet. She was really relieved because I was able to say stuff about a little bit about what I've learned about this stuff. I don't think she's following it nearly. She's frustrated. She Mm -hmm. wants to go out. She wants to go to the store. Mm -hmm. She's, she's cooped up and she has a really nice friend who like brings her food. And, but like it, I, I, I was really quite honestly taken aback. And she said, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Because that's, that's kind of what I needed to hear. And um, so I don't know, I don't know if looking at COVID charts made me any better at doing that, but I'm glad that at least I was able to try and maybe that was what she needed was one person to take away the horrible, horrible like um, obligation and guilt of what she would normally do in any situation. I think it is useful. I think it was useful yeah. because you are not scrambling at that moment to mm-hmm. to express your vague feelings about things. And you I didn't were, say you, anything about President Cheeto and please stop carrying a gun. No, because I, I left those things aside. To the the task <laughs> at hand is explain in a concrete way from someone you trust, which is you or son. Like, and I, I think that definitely. I mean, that's that's part of the reason people feel like they want to be informed. It's not just idle curiosity, not just uh, self interest. It's because if you are informed, then, I mean, it's an extension of protecting yourself and your family to be able to know and to pass that knowledge on and explain from whence it came and not have it just be the first thing you heard or the thing that you read in a panic when you knew you were going to have to talk to your mom. You're right. good, ready to go, and really it's just a matter of deciding on the best approach. Well, it's better than the time I had to bone up on blood clots in one afternoon. But so anyway, let's move on to let's move away from the corn and move to the happy things. I would love to give you the opportunity to beat the living crap out of me on several follow up points. The, uh, I, I hope everyone is uh, maintaining their corn. Uh, do what you can. And uh, uh, onward. <laughs> oh, God, she raised me. She practically raised me. Ugh. So, oh, uh, God, there's so John Syracuse. We have so many items of follow up here that. <laughs> You should probably attend to. 
Don't hold back. Don't, don't hold back. Don't do that. You give it to me. Give, give me I both barrels. I don't see anything in the follow-up section. Are you talking about stuff in many topics? Is that where we're going oh, now? Would you like me to compose an ad hoc improvised song on all the things I didn't do this week? It could it's be maybe in the style of do. Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> For, I mean, it, I we didn't could do this. hold bananas I, and I didn't watch the actress movie. <laughs> you didn't hold banana. I guess I you're didn't not hold the banana. banana. You didn't hold the banana. I, I didn't hold I the banana. Some, I didn't uh, make the sauce. Banana. I didn't do any of those things. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, well, you know, it's not about whether you did them. We're just, we're just checking. It. Let's talk about bananas first. Uh, yeah, because we got, got, I think we have follow up on this, don't we? I feel like we got some pretty good feedback from people. And remind people what the banana handles about the banana person test. It was a secret weird thing people do. Yeah. It was about whether uh, whether not wanting to touch the naked banana was a thing and how people ate bananas and so on and so forth. <laughs> Please never say that phrase again. It's, but that's what it comes down to, right? It's, it's a like nude, taking the peel. It's a tasteful nude banana. Exactly, taking the peel entirely off the banana. Mm. Right? Um, someone sent us a video of Chris Morocco from uh, Bon Appetit Test Kitchen taking the peel entirely off a banana and touching it, furthering people's obsession with uh, the idea that I'm somewhat like him. When obviously I'm a Molly. Wait, and I keep wait, telling wait, wait, wait. Is Chris is me. Chris the guy, the uh, the the handsome man who's very trim? And Chris, what's his name? Chris, what? Morocco. I think he's the one I really like. He's the very I like. I don't like his food opinions. Oh he's yeah, but I like guy. his I like his videos a lot, and he has really cute kids. Yeah. Okay. So so Chris Morocco touched the new the tasteful new banana. Yeah. Someone sent me a video of that. Anyway, um, someone had done a Twitter poll, which, as we know, are entirely scientific and yes. completely representative of the world. But it was massively. The question was not. The question wasn't wasn't quite the the what I was getting at, which I'll. I'll explain in a second, but it was like, how do you eat a banana? Do you eat it by peeling it down a little bit and then eating, blah, blah, blah. You take the peel off entirely, discard it, and then eat the banana. And it was like, you know, hugely, it was like 85, 15 uh, in favor of uh, peeling slowly and, you know, uh, peeling <laughs> peel, peel, peel slowly right? and see. Yeah. Yeah. And so my thing uh, that maybe I didn't express well last time is not so much how do you eat a banana? It's the fear of the naked banana that was that was boggling to me, Right. The fear of the, the, perhaps the revulsion. Right, right. So like, mm -hmm. how are you ever even at a fine? But it's like, either way, it's just like, a, oh, convenience. It basically kind of boils down to when and how you want to get rid of the peel. If you're not going to be near a garbage later, you take, you peel it now, put the peel in the garbage, then you're on the go with the banana. And when you're done, you don't have a thing you have to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because as we know, banana peels are very slippery. You do not want to throw that on the floor. <laughs> uh, but th then it comes down to like, but it's not that, you know, for some people, it seemed like it's not a choice about convenience of peel uh, disposal it is more a, a a fear of touching the actual banana as if it's a thing that should never be touched and you can only handle it through the use of the peel and you would never want to put your finger on it again like it's your own poop you don't want to touch it i bet it's i just a quick opinion i bet the second part is the weird banana sinews i personally am not a fan of the weird banana sinews oh that that's another thing that's another thing i should bring up by the way yeah, you, okay, for, okay. for practical purposes um the little, the little stringy things on the side of a banana, yeah. way easier to get off if you take the peel entirely off because you can see them. They come off in one clean strip and you chuck them with the peel. Whereas if you're doing it incrementally, it, sometimes they're harder to find and then you have to keep... I get it. It's, it's, a, it's a form of uh, banana exfoliation. Yeah, you have to keep incrementally peeling them along with the peel. And if you miss one, then now you got the one poking up. Like, yeah, it's way easier. So anyway, I, I, A, I endorse the technique of taking the peel entirely off. But B, really, it's, it's more about who fears the naked banana. Uh, and <laughs> the... The answer is, uh, it seems like most people do not take the peel entirely off, and a, and a pretty big subset of those people fear that they fear the naked banana. They fear the naked banana. They don't. Yeah. They don't want to touch it. Way bigger than, for example, we talked about this before. If you had asked them how many people eat uh, popcorn with a spoon, 
or refuse to touch uh, Ruffles potato chips, you'd have tiny numbers because I think that is less common. But or or even Cheetos for for that matter. Uh, Cheetos are obviously more sort of uh, I don't want to say damaging, but they affect your hands way more than bananas do. But the vast majority of the world, probably or the U.S. anyway, probably has no problem eating Cheetos with their fingers. But it seems like most people don't want to touch the naked banana. All right, I'm done saying that phrase. We've covered it. That is the assessment. Okay. No, I'm into it now. I mean, I'm really into it now. I'm still not entirely uh, going to agree that I'm the weird one here. I mm-hmm. think the people who fear the naked banana are a weird one. I said it again. I couldn't stop myself. I think your temperature stuff is much weirder. And I've talked to your wife about this. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not... We can talk about that. I think we did talk about that. Of course we did. We talked you... about it many times. I, I did. I'm not, I don't want to out my wife as an overheater. That's why oh, I took it. Oh, you're going to out her because there's some, there's some excessive stuff going on in your house. Oh my God. You have no idea. You want, go ahead. I don't want to, you, it's your, it's your secret. To, it's your story to tell. I was tell. out for a little while and I came back and our flat was 20 degrees warmer Fahrenheit than the outside environment. And what temperature was that? Um, if memory serves, it was 79. And was it 79 because it just happened to drift to 79 or was it 79 because someone set the thermostat to 79? <sighs> this episode will never air. One of the coolest things that my lady friend got the house for Christmas. Uh, there's never, okay, you know what? I thought, I thought the standing desk was the biggest turnaround in opinion I would ever have about a gift mm-hmm. given. Uh-uh. Guess what she got us? She got us a fake fireplace. Not the kind that I had when I was a kid that has the, like, you put up a Christmas time, it's made out of cardboard. This is a little iron-looking thing with a very clever set of lights and a weird plexiglass backboard and some settings. And it makes a beautiful fire. Um, our fireplace is really old and in not very good condition, so we... Do- Does it have orange crepe paper with a fan blowing under it? Yeah, yeah. We, we also got a picture <laughs> of a, a turkey wavy. we made with drawing our hands. No, but take, what I'm getting at is there's similar, actual flame very involved similar. here somewhere. And there's no flame involved. It's all, I will hmm. find the unit for you and put it in notes uh, for, the ep- when the, for the episode goes up. Um, she got this for us, and um, I'm leaving out the exciting part. It has a tiny little heater under it. And so that is in the aperture that used to be our functional fireplace. And every two or three days, we look at each other and we're like, first of all, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but second of all, I love the fireplace. It draws a lot of power, (laughs) but it really pumps out some heat. If you forget to turn it off, it keeps running. And if you're like the frog in the pot, which I know, I know, but you're, you're my lady friend and it's by that standing desk, which is now her desk, it's nice to have a nice cozy room. Some people really like to be cozy. Uh, and that, I think that had been on for a lot of the day. And then I came in and I said, ah, so hot in here. And, uh, and so that's why I chose to take it to a super secret private, private text channel of my own design, which is you, me and your wife. My wife would not be, I would not involve her in this. She doesn't know it. I could invite her. Okay. Um, I wish she wouldn't. And, uh, oh, also she moved. You can't contact her. Um, and so I said to your lady friend and you, huh? What I didn't say, what I started to type and then stopped is, I'm not interested in wife swapping insofar as I could get someone who's more temperature compatible. I thought that's a weird way to start the thread. So instead, I said, in my, my next marriage, I'm going to find someone more temperature compatible, which I think was much more tasteful. More tasteful well, than a naked I, banana. I, I feel like your text thread gave me the wrong impression because I thought she had set this as a target temperature rather than it just happened to drift up to here. That's worse than setting meeting. it as a target temperature. 
It's worth no, noting. No, but the target is, is a conscious choice. This is no, just she was careless no, and left no, the thing but this on, implies, right? This impl- uh, to me, this implies, or I will infer, that if I hadn't arrived, our house might be 293 <laughs> degrees right now. Because it just keeps going up, I guess. You're going to use the best fit uh, button from Excel, just like our uh, yeah. supposed government. And, uh, if current <laughs> called, trends continue, your house curve, will be the- John. It's a cubic curve. You can make it <laughs> your, in Microsoft Excel. Your house Excel. will be the temperature of the sun in, in three days <laughs> if current trends continue. And that's why people are rising from the dead. We have a negative yield curve as regards uh, victims of the virus. Mm-hmm. 15, and then really it'll just pass through. And then we'll be stronger for it. <clears throat> um, 79 degrees. Yeah, it's pretty warm. Too a little hot. cozy, a little cozy. And so I went and I opened some yeah. windows and I went, ah, it's so hot in here. Um, <laughs> oh boy, this will never air. Um, that's why I brought that to y'all. You know, because you, you're a man who enjoys lots of layers. And then when you described, I don't want to talk out of school, I will give you the opportunity to say this if you want to say this. I knew from this program that you like to have lots of layers when you go to bed. That was the genesis, mm-hmm. if memory serves, of the secret weird thing is your lady friend saying, huh, okay. <laughs> it was the like, I think part of what your thesis is that it must, it, normally it's not something that can be discovered by oneself more often yeah. your secret weird thing is discovered by somebody else going what are you doing and for you that is i think two to 11 layers of clothing when you go to bed three you're a three-layer man right yeah that was the one and that was i think that was like the, one of the first ones on my list we were supposed to both prepare lists of things right. um that actually does change with the seasons uh because i do wear less when it gets warmer out but the thing that doesn't change is my bedding which is substantial you have you described had you described that on the show because if you had i don't remember because john syracuse uh, not, is wearing anyway, well i want to just set this up john syracuse is going to bed now his lady friend likes to be cooler john likes to be warmer there's been some negotiations about thermostats i i, I hear but l- let's let's put, put it this way john john syracuse is wearing i believe two to three layers of personal body clothing so you need what probably just like a light like a light blanket when you go to bed that's during the winter. The winter, yes, I have multiple layers that I'm wearing, and then, mm-hmm. but like I said, that changes. In the in the summer, I'm just wearing boxers and a t-shirt, right? Mm-hmm. Which seems might be normal somewhere, but the thing on the bed doesn't change with the seasons, and there's a reason for that. In the winter, it is, uh, you know, it makes more sense. It is. I have a, a down comforter inside a flannel comforter cover thing, and then I have a regular comforter, like a cotton stuffed whatever one, on top of that. So that's that's my bedding, and we have separate sheets. This is a <laughs> technology that I think everybody should consider at least. Okay, uh-huh. separate okay. separate covers in the bed. I mean, I don't I don't know what other people do on television. They always have a shared sheet situation, but I, uh, you know, one of my you'd be like the Petries and just get two two twin beds. One of my important innovations in the in our marriage was immediately to say, look, let, first let me introduce you to the idea of big snuggly comforters because they're great, and second, let me introduce introduce you to the idea that I have some and you have some, and we have our own, and you don't have to worry about fighting each other over them. And that system works great. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So you got my my two things there, right? It basically looks like two comforters on top of each other, but one of them has down and flannel, and the other one is just cotton, right? Mm-hmm. That's my covers year-round. That seems so heavy. Isn't that heavy on your feet? Uh, I mean, it's not that way. It's not like a, a weighted sleep blanket. Like, it's pretty light and fluffy, mm, right? Yeah. Um, during the winter, it makes sense because it's very cold in the winter, and our thermostat goes down pretty low at night. Uh, and so, you know, sure, fine. During the summer, I'm in my boxers and T-shirt, mm-hmm. And you're like, well, then why do you need the giant covers? That's to protect me from the freezing cold window air conditioner. 
Oh, okay. I see. Because that's the temperature my wife likes it in the summertime. It's very, very cold. Just because the seasons change doesn't mean you're going to give up your armor class. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Inside inside my bedroom with the door closed and the window air conditioner blasting, it's pretty chilly. Mm -hmm. So... That's why the covers never change, but the outfit does because you know. my my wife cannot will not be on this show. I will not allow it. But I would love to have your wife on this show. Would you consider that wife for wife? That's the deal. If she comes on, and oh, you're saying no, no time to argue. Too. Throw me the spouse. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh God bless her. <laughs> We're gonna get through this corn, buddy. Yeah, mm. and, and and anyway. It, it mostly works out, but 79 is beyond, like, the re- we can both agree that there's no situation in which that's okay. Now, having said that, our house frequently gets way over that temperature because we don't have central air conditioning. Right. We have right, window right. units in the bedrooms, but then downstairs during the summer, we'd frequently look at our thermostat and it would say 89 degrees. We don't like that. We don't endorse it. We just don't have a choice except for to run up to the bedroom and hide with our window air conditioners. But that yeah. can get kind of gross, too, you know? Yeah. I want to become successful and get a house like Todd. I want like a nice house that's central insulated. air conditioning. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine you have... that? I walked by. I walked by. I don't want to talk out of school, but one, one time we visited with Todd and his family, and I walked by one of their their heat holes, and uh, <laughs> that's and, what they call and, them. And that's what they call them in Marin. And uh, I was like, I was like Marilyn Monroe with my skirt coming up. I was like, how did you get this much heat coming out of this? You, thing? Ever, you ever go to someone's house who has a heated bathroom floor? Yeah. I've never been so angry in my life. I wanted it so yeah, much. I don't even I don't even like to think that that exists. Well, so that, when they say heated, I think the thing that's important to understand about a heated floor, the first time I heard of a heated floor, like so many things, my, my memory raced to this idea that like, oh, it's going to be like walking through a parking lot in the summertime. It's not heated. Yeah, it's just a it's, hot tan-tan roof. <laughs> it's just so hot. But the, <laughs> I love that tan-tan. It's a little dog snowy. The, the, um, but, but I was visiting with some friends in, in Portland, and I uh, took a shower, and I was like, ooh. It's not that it's hot, it's heated. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, just, non, it's not it cold. It's non-cold. It's, yes, it's a non-cold mm-hmm. floor. It's just mm-hmm. like, oh, this should be a lot colder. And, and uh, oh, oh, this is nice. Between that and the bidet, it makes you want to get a job. Like, I would love that. Yeah, well, let's not go crazy. Yeah. I mean, I've got the job. I don't, don't have the heated floor or the bidet. I don't know. I'm doing something wrong. You know, that's, that's the, you know what that is, John? That's the corn talking. That's the corn. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of one one more corn related thing. Yeah, sure, um, sure, sure. So we've already we already talked about my infected toe. Uh, oh, come on. I thought we were done with this. Are you still infected? Uh well I wasn't I wasn't gonna revisit that, but I'll give you a brief update. Uh the update is I heard it through the grapevine that because your lady friend is the keeper of the photos, I heard sometimes that photo pops up is what I heard. It's in my photo library. I don't think I added it to her. Not what I heard. One. There's a super secret yeah, channel you don't know about. <laughs> anyway, uh, the deal the deal with the toe is status quo. The deal with the toe is status quo. So I went through <gasps> a full force of toes? You might have COVID toes. I took every single one of them. I didn't like, you know, and it never changed. Hmm. And like I, it, <laughs> in normal toes. times, mm-hmm. I would go to... I would go to the podiatrist because that's what my sure. doctor said. And look, and if it still is an issue, I can give you a referral to a podiatrist. But I don't want to go to a podiatrist in this city. I don't want to go out and see anyone. I'm, I'm, you know, quarantining. Mm-hmm. It's like a non-essential medical. I don't like. So I would go to the podiatrist to get this looked at, but instead I'm not, and it's not getting worse, mm-hmm. but it's also not getting better. So it's just there being annoying. Related to that, there are things in my home that are crumbling. That in normal times, I would immediately call someone and have them come fix. But now, I'm far less likely to do that because I'm, again, 
quarantine. Quarantine, Q-U-A-R. And so mm-hmm. things are falling apart here. Like our kitchen faucet, my wife is driving me nuts about it because it needs to be replaced. I know it needs to be replaced. It's a little bit leaky. I would have replaced it weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But like it's not bad enough that water is shooting out everywhere. It's just annoying. And then you have to close it just the right way. And then she gets annoyed if it's dripping and, and whatever. Is it that thing where you have to, I mean, like on ours, it's one of those uh, one, uh, unihandle deals. Uh, is it mm-hmm. one of those things where like you have to bring it down exactly this hard at 4.30 p.m.? You know, you know what I mean? On terms uh, of clock, you got to like yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. No, here. It just, ours just needs to be centered. So like on the right is cold, left okay. is hot. Ours needs to be brought down centered. If it's not brought down centered, you get a little weeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had the sprinkler person come to to reactivate our sprinklers. It mostly could be done from outside, which is fine. But then when the sprinkler person left, as usual, the sprinkler system was leaking water. And so I just had to go fix that myself. But like, you know, and luckily I could because I have enough plumbing stuff in the house to be able to fix a minor leak. Uh, but things like that of the house just slowly deteriorating. <laughs> that I would normally just address right away. Now it's like they have to just like my stupid toe. They have to just be in a holding pattern. Well, we started out, li- we started out in the best of cases living in a Gilligan's Island shack. And like now mm-hmm. it's like, boy, you know, there's a lot of little stuff you got to do along the way. A lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have you. And like now it's just like, ugh, there's just a, there's going to be a bunch of stuff to do in a few weeks. We have uh, somebody coming out tomorrow to fix the exercise bike. Pretty excited about that. That seems like a, another one of those things that I would say it's a non-essential thing that I would just say, let's just, we just. I mean, I suppose maybe if you need it for exercise to not go crazy and becomes essential, but you're just going to like run, run away when that happens? Well, let's, you know, first principles, Clarice, what is it that we're trying to avoid? We're trying to avoid prolonged indoor contact with strangers. Mm-hmm. And so like everybody's going to be wearing a mask. We're not going to be in the room when he's doing his thing. And unless, mm-hmm. unless he's like, I don't know, like, filleting my apple watch i think we'll be fine but the thing is it's not just with strangers right uh-huh. the what you want like people are not created equal in terms of the little magical graph that you see extending from them anybody who has a profession that requires them to constantly see a, a long never-ending stream of strangers mm-hmm. is an incredible focal point for infection oh, for being a carrier yeah so <laughs> just uh, if you know if yeah. my camera was turned on you would see the terrible situation on top of my head i desperately need a haircut Oh, but yeah. who do you want to not go see? Someone whose job, if they were even open, which I don't think they are, someone mm-hmm. whose job it is to all day, every day, stay in an enclosed space with a never-ending stream of people coming next to them and staying next to them and breathing in their space for 15, 20 minutes over and over and over again. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace. You can learn more about Squarespace right now by visiting squarespace.com slash Diffs, friends, I implore you to make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next big idea. You can get a unique domain. They have their beautiful award-winning templates and so much more. Maybe you want to create an online store, a portfolio, a blog, any kind of, I'm just going to say stuff that you want to put onto the global internet. You can pretty much do that with Squarespace. And uh, it's an all-in-one platform. Let's you do whatever you need to do. There's nothing to install right? No patches to worry about, and there are no upgrades needed. You do not have to worry about any of that stuff because Squarespace has got you covered. They have award-winning 24 by 7 customer support if you ever need any help. They let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and all of their award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I'm a huge fan of Squarespace. I use it for the Roderick on the Line podcast and my personal sites. It's how I post my playlists. 
you know, if the uh, Ungainly X-Man meetup were still around, uh, I'd still be using Squarespace for it. Nothing on Squarespace, you know, but did they really have to replace it, you know, with a psychic there? It just makes me so sad. I miss that place. RIP to a real one. Squarespace plans start at just $12 per month. You can start a trial right now with no credit card required. You go to squarespace.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code diffs to get you 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain, and that will show your support. Also, for John Syracuse. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash diffs. Offer code diffs for 10% off your first purchase. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting reconcilable differences and all of Relay FM. I want to plant a seed. Okay, then we'll go to the main topic uh, after I mm-hmm. plant a seed. Mm-hmm. The seed I want to plant is uh, a mini topic here that I'm calling media choosing follow up. Because um, we've been talking a lot about, uh, well, last week we talked a lot about, um, you know, how you rate media, how you try to introduce media to your kids. And I, I had said uh, something stupid like I do, which was, you know, sometimes I just want to watch something fun. Like, how do I find something fun? Well, it's a very ineffable quality. Is it quirky? Is it what is it? And I don't know, this might have even been while we were recording last time. I also realized like there's another axis that occurred to me, which is something along the lines of available attention. Like uh, there's certain kinds of things that need pretty much no attention. Sort of like, I think the way Tiff talks about doing like arts and crafts while she has something on in the background, that, there's, there's that kind of media viewing. Or for that matter, listening to NPR while you're driving in your car. Like, you can manage to follow what's happening. But, I mean, so I sort of just was thinking about this. Number one, uh, I'm planting a seed. Uh, is something like available attention an interesting axis for choosing media, media? And B, I would like you to think about whether there are other axes like that that would be useful in deciding contextually what's the right thing at the right time to watch with the right people. Does that make sense? It does. I, yeah, God, I can, Godfather, can... Godfather 1 is not something we should start at 11 when everyone's tired. Yeah. You, I mean, you could consider that seed planted. I will be prepared to talk about that. We can leave it in the notes because okay. I do want to leave time for our main topic here. Okay. And we're back. Impro. Impro. Yes. That's what I like to call it. I call it impro. Yeah. I call it impro. Mm-hmm. Is that the name of a famous book that you've read about this topic? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so your, your question to me, ask, uh, <laughs> you talk. What is it we're talking about here? You this is in response, been... I'm sure, to my obsession mm-hmm. right now with a certain kind of pretty funny comedy. And your endorsement of it. Your very enthusiastic endorsement of a comedy thing. Not that, that many things I've endorsed this liked. hard in a while. Yeah, no, that's why I took notice. Yeah. Um, and this one is a, is it like a series? I'm assuming there's multiple episodes. What John has typed here in topics that I was, as I said to you in our super secret private text channel, for once, I like what you want to talk about here. And I was excited to talk about it. Why <laughs> Merlin loves improv. I mean, I don't even know if that's true, first of all, uh, because you've been endorsing this specific thing, which is a Netflix series with these two people who do improv and, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can watch them do it. And you, in a particular episode, you thought was really good and you heavily endorsed it. It's like an hour long ish. Yeah. Um, the name of the show, I'm not going to be able to pull it out of my memory. Do you remember it? <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, Middle it, Ditch and Schwartz. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Yeah. Middle Ditch and Schwartz. Wow, I, I really you, did. You, I get it. You nailed it in one. Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's Thomas Middle Ditch, who is um, best known as uh, Richard on Silicon Valley. Although he he's had many many great parts, including 
Pete Holmes's X-Men series where he plays alternately Gambit and Nightcrawler, and it's very funny. But mm, he's best known for Silicon Valley. Um, the, the top line here. And then um, uh, Ben Schwartz, uh, I would think, until fairly recently, best known for playing Jean Ralphio on Parks and Rec, but he also does tons of voice work. And they both have a, a, a deep background in improv. And so, so something that they've been doing over, I think over a year, two years, is they roll into your town, they go to a theater, they walk in, and uh, they say, hi, we're Mendel Edition Shorts, and we're going to talk to you, tell us about something you're excited about or you're anxious about. They talk to the audience, somebody in the audience for a few minutes, and then they do, uh, all these words are important, an entirely improvised, long-form improvisation that ends up telling something like a story, follows a through line, such as it can, uh, and they're doing, you know, what in the business, I guess, is called long-form improv. And I, I, I don't know, I flipped it on a week or two ago, and uh, I watch at least one episode every night, and there are a total of three episodes. It's only three seen, episodes, really? I, yeah, I've seen Law School Magic, I think, six times now. Um, and, you know, so one thing also to mention along the way here is, yes, I do love improv and would love the chance to talk about that. Uh, second of all, I'm just I'm on a I'm on a comedy binge right now. I can't quite explain it, but like I've discovered a couple new podcasts. I'm just diving real deep on some stuff that makes me happy. I don't think blank it's check, purely right? because like who's blank check. Like That's who? one of the podcasts you've discovered, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Blank check, highly recommended. Um, Robocop, um, Book of Henry, very good. Um, so so anyway, what had happened was I uh, I discovered the show. I flipped it on. I love those two guys. I've you know I mean John Ralphio is one of the great characters in my opinion, and um, it was you know it was what I expected in terms of being two very very funny guys. And what well we'll get into this I, I imagine, but like it's improv is special, and I've rarely personally seen improv that is in my opinion this special. I mean. Like, you know, they say Americans' number two fear is death and number one is public speaking. Well, imagine on top of that, rolling into a new town, maybe you haven't slept so good and got weird food, might have die-die a little bit. You roll into town and you have in front of you a 60-minute fully improvised performance with your partner. Um, and it's the two of you mic'd up on a stage with two chairs. Go. And so we'll talk about this. But I don't know. I, um, every time I watch it, I'm, I'm still kind of blown away by it. And I would love to address this. Middle edition Schwartz. So the statement is correct. You you do love improv. Before you discovered this series, uh, how did this love manifest itself? Would you, um, would yes. you seek it out? Yes. I, I have. Here's, here's why you love me. Um, is first of all, I spent th- three hours preparing for this today, uh, collecting links and creating notes. Uh that's not the reason you love me. The reason you love me is I'm going to throw almost all of that out and just focus on a few things. And I'm going to try to be as efficient as possible in talking about this. Should I tell you a story from my life first? Yes. No, I'm just going. <laughs> no, I wish no, you would. I was going to... No, I can't oh, see your Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, I'm going to need, the, I'm going to need a, a pizza topping and right. a police corruption scandal mm-hmm. and the length of a penis. Mm-hmm. Yes, and... Um, so I put little emoticons next to some of these. Here's the disclaimer up front. Uh, I'm going to, I've been told that I have to read this. The McElroy brothers are not experts. No, I am a fan <laughs> and ardent admirer of improv. I am neither an expert nor a historian, nor even much of a very 
serious student. So I'm going to try to avoid talking about a bunch of stuff that's not relevant to why I love this. There are there should be pretty copious notes out there if you want to check out any of the stuff that I thought was interesting to put in. But um, yes, may I may I address this? Please do. Something I feel like I know about you. I mean, you like Money Python, for example, right? Sure. Yeah. And we've, 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 we've talked a lot about that. Why is Monty Python funny? Like, what part is funny? Is it funny because they're English? Is it funny because we understand? Is it funny because we don't understand? So, like, just a fast back-of-the-envelope comedy distinction I want to struggle to make here because I'm not an expert. Um, Travis insists that he's a sexpert, but there's a degree on as well. I've never seen it. Uh, I want to contrast stand-up versus what I would call pure improv versus what I would call sketch comedy. Because I don't even know if that makes a triangle or a Venn diagram, but the thing, I, the kind of comedy, there's a kind of comedy that we're used to, which is like, oh, I don't know, you, you see an Adam Sandler movie. Well, in terms of performance, though, like in a theater or, you know, in a, in a setting somewhere, I think the kind of comedy most people are familiar with, that have the most of, is either stand-up or sketch comedy. So stand-up comedy, you prepare a bit, a routine, in, in, and I, I realize there's, you know, everybody's different and special. Hakuna Matata. Stand-up comedy, you work your ass off getting a 10-minute set, and you try to move that to a 20-minute set, et cetera. And you are constantly refining exactly every word choice, exactly every gesture. When you watch somebody like John Mulaney, who happens to be my favorite stand-up right now, John Mulaney has worked really hard to be as good as he is. And you can hear the little ways. It's not like he was ever bad, but you can, he's a writer, essentially. And then he became a stand-up, and you can really feel how he's sweated every syllable and gesture of what he's doing. The way that he moves on stage, he knows that he is being very funny with what he's doing. The pacing is incredible. Stand-up is so much about preparation and rehearsal and doing stuff over and over and over. And then it's, I don't want to say at the other end of the spectrum, but at another point of the triangle, you have what I would call pure improv. And without getting too deep into stuff I don't really understand, comedy improv uh, it goes back a long way, but like I think it has a lot of basis in Chicago, in Second City, and all these different things. And depending on the level of purity of the group that, or the school or the, the kung fu master that you're doing it with, the idea in improv is, uh, it's yeah, I mean, like most improv, especially UCB-style improv, you want it to be funny. But like if you're doing more of a Keith Johnstone impro-style improv, it's not to be funny and, and to... to there's a, there's a wonderful book by uh, Charna Halpern about the late Del Close called Truth and Comedy. And I think that falls a little bit more in between. That's the more Second City idea of like, it has to, it can be funny, but it has to be true. Like you, but the thing that makes improv so special is the improv. What is the improv? And that is however you got to where you are, your job on that stage is to be the world's greatest listener and to not, as they say, not overthink it, like stop thinking. Like you've got, you've got to get out there. You've got to listen to your partner. You've got to get their back and you have to respond to what is happening, not what you think should happen. You need to be responding to what's happening, not to what you think would be funny. Now, what is sketch comedy? Well, sketch comedy can be a million different things. What's interesting about sketch comedy is there are a lot of stand-up comedians that do sketch comedy and a lot of sketch comedy comes out of improv. So like if you watch the wonderful short lives, uh, Upright Citizens Brigade TV show, which was in some ways kind of my intro to a modern sort of improv. All, all, almost all that stuff started in improv and then got developed into sketches over time. So does that make sense? Like, I love all three. I love, I love John Mulaney. I love Upright Citizens Brigade. I love Kids in the Hall. Like three different kinds of things um, that are all funny, 
And the, but the way they got at the funny and the way that they make the funny is very different. It's improv is special because it's one thing to see people make something up that's funny. And it's another thing to see people make something up that requires such an extraordinary level of engagement with what's happening. To have like almost like a mind meld with the people that you're working with. Classic example here from the wonderful TV show, The Office. Don't do improv the way Michael Scott does improv. That's all I'm going to say about that. Any point where you have to whisper to your improv partner to say, act like I have a gun, that's not good improv. And this is why I ask you, John, about in-band versus out-of-band signaling. There is no out-of-band signaling in improv. (laughs) Whatever you're doing is what's happening. It's already happened. Now what's going to happen next? Short version, I can talk more about history, but what I love about Middle Ditch and Schwartz uh, is, like I say, it's two guys, two mics, and two chairs. And what they do, how can I put this? They're constantly adjusting to what just happened. They're constantly creating, inhabiting, and then sometimes struggling to remember different characters. There will be like, there could be nine characters in this scene, and they're all played by two people. And guess what? They're played by two people at different times. And guess what? When the other guy is impersonating the first guy's character, he's trying to impersonate that guy doing his character. Okay? If Ben Schwartz gets the German accent wrong on Stanley number two, that's part of the show now. That's now part of the show, right? <laughs> Do you follow? The constant adjustments and the running around, the logical leaps and the connections and reconnections. Oh my God, I forgot about Nigel. That's right, I'm still here. Stuff like that. Again, two guys. This is not an ensemble. This is two guys. And yeah, this spins out of stuff like UCB, it spins out of the Herald, it spins out of a lot of things, blah, 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 nobody cares. The main thing I take away from like why I love this show and you, why you have to sit down and both of you put down your phones is you've got to watch every cubic second what Ben Schwartz does with his left eyebrow is one of the funniest things you will ever see in your life. And you will not catch it if you're watching a dog juggle. Like, you really need to watch this. And then to appreciate the moment when Thomas Middleditch understands that thing that you just did with your hand tells me that you're the one with the ponytail, so now you're Emily. And I'm going to respond to you because you're Emily. And it's the more you pay attention to this, the funnier it gets, and the more your brain wants to explode with how much is happening at once. I have much more to say about this. Please respond. A couple of things come to mind. When you mentioned that uh, sketch comedy sometimes coming out of improv, like that, you know, it, rather than like stand up where you, you yeah, write a bunch of jokes. It's not purely and, like written in a, in a dark room. And but like maybe by the time it's performed, it has, you know, you've honed it and you've got your jokes and you've got your stuff or whatever, but that's not how it was developed. It was developed to improv and you get something out of it. It reminded me, maybe because I'm sitting next to them, it reminded me of the, uh, uh, the Dragonlance books that I read uh, as a kid. That were supposedly, I'm pretty sure this is true and not just uh, a apocryphal story, um, that they did a Dungeons and Dragons campaign with uh, the authors, did a Dungeons and Dragons campaign with characters and stuff. Oh my God. And then that's more or less how they got the you know the story so it's like it's it's like doing improv to get a sketch out of it they did a D campaign to get a novel out of it right because mm-hmm. because the, the people playing the characters played the characters they came up with the idea while they were on the way to tsr for a job interview can you believe that i don't know are you reading the wikipedia page no i just know it mm-hmm. yeah uh, but anyway, the, the, the running the campaign, you know, D&D in many respects is like improv because, I mean, you've mm-hmm. got a character that you're supposed to be playing and you're in character or whatever. It's, it's dynamic, participatory storytelling. 
Right. Uh, but then you can have the result of that be like, oh, I've got a bunch of good ideas. And by going through it together and having all these different contributors, I can turn that into a novel, which is like the sketch version. So I, that's, yes. that's what that brought to mind. And the second thing is when you mentioned out of band versus in band that you had uh, texted me earlier that you were thinking about, I thought what you were going to say, rather than saying there's nothing that's out of band, it's all in the, what's in the show is in the show. I thought what you were going to say is what you got at later with this particular uh, sketch. Was it law, law school, magic law school or something? Law school magic, yeah. Law school magic. Um, uh, that these two, when they when they do it, and I imagine this is true of any improv uh, performance, I have limited experience with them, but uh, these two definitely embrace it. When you're doing it, we know there's the yes and thing, right? But practically speaking, uh, sometimes your partner will do a thing that you either didn't expect or aren't prepared for to go in that particular direction. Right. And so... <laughs> like Joan Rivers. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, I mean, so to give an example from if you haven't if you haven't seen the law school magic, you won't know what this is about. But Merlin certainly does. Uh, a certain point, a door is being opened. Wait, so you've seen it? Yeah, I oh, watched it. Okay. You right. promoted it like a hundred yeah, times on yeah. Twitter. Like, okay, sorry, sorry. Yeah, that, oh, so no. many doors, so many doors. Yeah, and there's there's a certain thing behind the door that <laughs> that that one person on stage is enthusiastic about doing. The other person on stage is like does not really want to go there. Right. And so they have this little mini conversation in character about whether we could just not open this door. <laughs> I suppose like, that would be disappointing. <laughs> right. Um, and then the guy who is the thing that's feared has to run out from around and run behind the other guy and be a different character and say like, mm-hmm. what is going on? And like, yeah, exactly. And so that's like, that's the, feel like the out of band thing in band is you're in character, you're having a conversation, doing jokes or whatever, you know, doing something funny. But the out of band is, but also you, the audience knows they're watching two performers try to figure this out as they go along. And absolutely, there is a give absolutely. and take between the two performers and the yes, audience. Absolutely. And that's the out of band stuff. The out of band stuff is, it's like fourth wall breaking meta comedy at the same yeah. time as you have the comedy. No, that's totally fair. I, I probably put that poorly, but like another way to look at this is uh, there's, a, there's a terrible cliche about, you know, well, Picasso broke the rules, but first he learned the rules. Like, and I, I think that's not a totally stupid thing to say. It's true. Um, but that what you, the, learning some of the principles about how to do this and practicing it so you don't have to think about the principles anymore leads to some very interesting circumstances. And I've watched the two of these guys now enough to know that when they do something like that, I mean, <laughs> There's a million cliches, some of which I'm sure we'll talk about. There's a million cliches in improv, but one that I really believe, it's why I embrace improv and would be terrified to ever do uh, stand-up, is that the greatest thing that can happen sometimes is a mistake. They talked about this in their interview with Conan O'Brien that I can highly recommend. But Conan talked about how he, he started doing stand-up and did this like 18-city uh, tour, I guess a year or two ago. And uh, he would do a bit. And he says, like, yeah, I did the bit. I did. A, I had a, a set, and the set kept getting better. And then, like, just for poops and giggles one night, he took questions from the audience. And it turned out really good. So he did it again the next night. And it wasn't more than a few days before he saw the stand-up part as the thing he needed to get through to get to the questions, because that's when the show got good. Talking about Johnny Carson. Funniest moment on Johnny Carson. None of you kids will know this, but when the hatchet-throwing guy is on the show, and he throws a hatchet at where Johnny would have been like in a, with a, like everybody knows this bit, but except for you youths, but he throws the hatchet where Johnny would have been standing. If he'd agreed to do this, Johnny's like, no, no way am I going to do that. And a funny thing happened on two levels. The first funny thing that happened was the hatchet lands exactly in the wrong spot where Johnny would have been standing. Johnny's reaction to that. He knows 
how to just sit back, like Jack Benny, like all the greats. He knows when to let the laughter just roar. I thought that was very funny, funny when I was a kid. It wasn't until I was a little older that I caught on the incredible coincidence that when the hatchet went in to the genital area, it also looked exactly like a boner. So Johnny, the worst thing Johnny could do at that point is go, wow, I guess I'm glad big man's job. Oh, yes. That's the thing, though is that when you're in imp- what this is an observation I'm not trying to teach just an observation but like so when so I'm, I'm so glad you watched this don't tell me if you liked it I like it when Tom, Thomas Middleditch does the thing where he'll be like oh he's like wait wait a minute you've changed because because um he doesn't I guess he doesn't like he, he thinks that Ben didn't get the accent and he's not doing the German right and he's like uh-huh. what is it was my name is my name is Stanley and he's like <laughs> and then Thomas, because then you're not going to get this for a second. Thomas Schwartz stands up. He starts running. Middleditch instantly knows what's going to happen. They swap seats, and now they're each other's characters. And Stanley, number one, says, what was your name again? Thomas Middleditch says the name properly, and then they switch back. So now he knows how to do the accent. Or when, uh, when that, the, the sweet Jason, the alien boy, he's just a boy, is wandering through the audience going, and he says to him, ah, oh, yes, of course, you were behind the door, which is exactly the kind of thing some German Transylvanian would do, right? And that's, so it would be really cheesy to go, as they, the classic cliche, here we are in Spain. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, wow, it's so weird to be back in this doctor's office or any of those, as you know, Bob, things that the worst improvisers do. Um, I, I interrupted you at length, but is that is that kind of uh, you're saying they do it? And isn't that kind of the funny part is when they do do that? Yeah, like it's kind of, you know, exactly what you're getting at with the, I don't know, I don't know anything about improv other than watching too many hours of eating in the improv as a kid on A&E, but that wasn't really improv either. Oh, I still um, love that show. Uh, like of like the the cliched 80s Hollywood, I'm trying to make it in Hollywood, I'm going to take an improv course, improv, like what, whatever all those affectations are, the real dedication to the sort of, the sort of, you know, gimmicky yes and uh here we are in spain doctor's office like all that stuff right part of that is that you are like it seemed like the the thing you were trying to attain was a to make people laugh but b not to break out of the mold to to build comedy from its pieces and if someone wasn't taking it seriously or got out of their character did like literally anything that's on the stage you'd you'd frown at them and you'd look think they were michael scott well in classic improvisational theater in which i would probably include keith johnstone's uh, training and teaching um that would be considered a really cheesy thing to do to to, to clarify one thing I, i texted you something earlier that's a quote from uh, Chandra Levy, not Chandra Levy. That's the lady who disappeared because of Gary Condit. Um, uh, Sean, I said Chandra, uh, Shana Halpern, Chandra anyway? Rhymes, uh, Shonda Land. It's a, it's a Shonda, and the uh, there's there's a great scene that uh, recounts something that did happen at whatever it was Compass Second City, whatever it was at the time, where uh, one of the many talents that was working at that theater was Joan Rivers, a young Joan Rivers working with a young Del Close, and Del Close, I mean, look him up. Uh, he, uh, and they were doing a scene and, uh, the story goes, apparently this is, this is meant to be a true story. Um, Del Close says to Joan Rivers, um, or she says, she says to Del Close, I want a divorce. And Del Close says, but what about our children? And she says, we don't have any children. And it got a big laugh, but that's a big 
cheap laugh. That's, that's not a yes and. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the yes and thing can be so over-exaggerated because, again, if you break that rule in the right way, it can be extremely funny. But the, the, the part that people know the yes part, they don't understand the and part, I feel like. Like, everybody thinks, oh, it's a, oh, yes, I agree that that's the biggest ice cream cone I've ever seen. No, you don't ask open-ended questions. You, 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 you take that bit and you build on it. You, you give them, you're basically, imagine that you were th- learning to play catch with a little kid. You're not there to throw fastballs, right? You're not there to make them look bad. If anything, your heart is aching with how you cannot throw that ball any slower and still have accuracy, right? Now imagine both of those people are a little kid, <laughs> right? That's what improv should be. What improv should be is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to th- give you something for you to take and run with, and, tr- and you can trust me. So, you know, yes and is a cliche, right? Well, it's the and that's important. But while we're on that, you know what the other really important thing is? Almost every improv group does this. I didn't learn this till like a year ago. Max told me this, and I've heard it numerous times since. Right before you go outside, right before you go through the curtain, right before you get on stage, every single person walks up to every other person, pats them on the back, and says, I got your back. Like, it's a ritual. It's one of those, like, you know, uh, you know, uh, clear eyes, full hearts can't lose kind of things. Everybody does that. And it's just everybody saying, I, I want you to have my back, and I will have your back. And so I'm not going to tell you that we don't have kids. In fact, you know, I'm going to say, you know, I want a second divorce or like I want to, I don't know what it is, but like you're going to, the and is so important. The yes keeps this in motion and keeps you from negating it. And apparently Del Close was mad at John Rivers for the rest of both of their lives because of this, <laughs> this one time. But the, uh, the and is so important because you're feeding them, Jack, feeding them. You're giving them something that they can then go with. Yeah, I think the trust, the trust is important to be able to pull off with the middle ditch duo were doing it because i like when i was watching it it was almost like adversarial improv which sounds like a phrase that doesn't make any sense but like the two of them obviously have been doing this long enough and trusting each other enough that they can in the moment like exactly with the door thing in in the moment sort of rib each other about the direction things are going exactly what you're not supposed to do is like oh don't you know try to steer it in a particular direction or or god forbid saying let's start this over yeah, or, or like, or, just, or have an, have a preconceived idea of like, I think I know what's going to be in that door, and if you don't, if you don't lead me in that direction, I'm going to try to steer you back. Exactly. Not that kind of, not yes. that kind of adversarial improv, but the kind that's basically like, you know, he had something planned behind the door, and his partner was like, oh, I don't, I'm not sure I'm ready for this, but in a gleeful way, not in a, I'm literally trying to work at cross purposes with you, right? And the two of them do that the whole time, whether it's making fun of each other or of the accents or not keeping track of characters or making fun of, a, like, to give an example, sometimes the, the, the idea you come up with, it doesn't is is doesn't work out that well. It's not yeah, the best. Yeah, gag. It, oh. you might start off going somewhere, but it's not really. And that happens in that particular sketch. You're like, what is happening? Is she writing? Is she using a laptop? What's she doing? But then it it, it finds a level because they are both putting all of their energy in focus into figuring out what the other person thinks is going into this. Or, or like the trust thing. Like at one mm-hmm. point they have a gag. He does a gag where uh, someone's supposed to leave the room, and and the gag <laughs> that he comes up with is that he can't find the door to leave. And it right? just keeps and later, going. later he gets made fun of for that gag by his partner yes. because, yes. like, practically speaking, it, you know, maybe it didn't work. And and <laughs> his his partner in real time is ribbing him yes. about a thing he tried to do earlier that didn't quite work. And that the level of trust they have is they do that, and it doesn't cause his partner to feel down on himself exactly. and perform poorly. And, but and it in is fact, a playful in fact, what 
what happens. As a result, this is kind of getting into the sort of the end of, I would say, the second act of this one-hour thing. But so what happens? There's the door bit, and then there's ribbing about the door bit. And then Ben Schwartz inhabits the German Stanley character that Thomas Middleditch had created. And what does he do? He has now incorporated that into the story, which is to say, I, I have a key. There is a door. You can't go there because it has my, my American secrets. I mean secrets in it. And then that becomes an extremely wild and funny and wooly sort of third act that gets really weird, a little dark. But yeah, that's, I, I think I know what you mean by ever so. But you know, I, I would not encourage anybody to watch this as often as I have and will continue to watch it. But, but if you watch it a lot, it's going to be like, you remember when you're like, uh, let's say you're 13, 14, and you know, like at this point in the TV show, there's a weird error. You know, there's a skip on the record at this point. You start noticing things because you've experienced it so many times. There's at least half a dozen occasions just in that one episode where there was a misunderstanding. So I have... Oh, there's tons of them. Yeah, because well, you but can like, see them searching each other's faces just to right. what the hell's going on. Well, yeah, like, you look confused, I look confused. Is it because we're both trying to remember Christina's name? Mm -hmm. Or who's here, mm -hmm. or how many people? But also, there's, there are times where, I think, for example, Thomas Middleditch, you know, over my nice loud TV, I hear him clearly starting this established character. And then, for example, it's not an error, but, like, Ben Schwartz will then address him as someone else, and then it's like, oh, well, you know, you can clear, I feel like you can see in Middleditch's eyes. Well, I, I know I'm doing Stanley the German guy, but he thinks that I'm Nigel the English guy. So I'll run with that. And he instantly changes to make his partner's story correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they, they, they end up with two Stanleys in a similar situation. <laughs> just, thought, just, just thought of variety. Um, so anyway, why do I love it? Uh, and I have an anecdote. So anyway, that's that. It's really good. I'll talk about this as much and long as you like, because I'm just going to go home and watch that show. I'll tell you a funny thing that happened, though. Um, so improv, I was aware of improv. Um, one of my very good friends, actually, the man who brought me Sausage Night, as uh, my friend Tony, uh, he did his thesis on some really interesting combinations of various experimental theater things, including like poor theater, including uh, improv, like, like pretty serious improv theater, mask work. Like that's what he it was a really, really good performance. And uh, with a group of like seven people. And so that was, I think, probably the first actual improv I saw. And I was like, wow, this is pretty wild. I mean, it wasn't funny, but it was, I was like, this is, you are so gutsy to be up there doing that. And then later on, of course, I watched Who Line, Whose Line Is It Anyway. Huge breaking point for me, not breaking point, uh, inflection point maybe, was when UCB was on Comedy Central. And then I came to realize that that, oh, I see, they are a, a comedy group. We're leaving aside the cult of improvisational kung fu schools title. But then my lady friend and I went to, I want to say, Sketchfest, uh, definitely over 12 years ago, and saw a friend of the show, Rob Corgi, and his um, improv group full of people you know uh, called Naked Babies. And they did a herald, something like a herald, see show notes for what that is. You know, it's a, it's a story that builds. Sometimes there's a, an anecdote or a monologue and, and you keep reincorporating things and you, there's a real structure to it. This is, this was had kind of that structure. There's two stories going on on stage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I sat in that audience and you know, like when people tell those outlandish stories about like, I don't know, the first time they saw Mickey man or the first time they saw their wife or whatever, John Syracuse, I was elevated to another plane watching that group do live. It's hard to find anything except for a few sketches they've done, but live improv in the room. It's, uh, it's, I walked out of that on a cloud. 
And I, I really, I felt like, <laughs> I felt like the guy with the braces in Waiting for Guffman, who, who wasn't in the play, I was like, oh man, I really wish I was doing this all the time. I wish I could do only this from now on and be good at it because it makes me so happy. And that was a real turning point for me. And that's, I think that's when I went from understanding this somewhat intellectually to understanding, that, oh, improv is more than just making stuff up. It's about like dynamically rejiggering the entire audience's idea of what's happening. And any one, two, three, four, 12 people are all at the same time doing everything they can to make everybody else look good and to get everybody's back and for the results to just be, uh, just, uh, it puts me over the moon. I love it so much. Yeah, getting to the thing that I know you didn't want to talk about, but it's yeah. actually somewhat related to the meta thing. Uh, I think improv has a reputation that basically like most people don't like it right i think most people do like stand-up comedy it's right. the sort of easy listening well i don't know if that's the right phrase but no anyway, like i know i think you're you're on the right track yeah like it, it's, 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 improv is more challenging like so if you told somebody we're gonna go see stand-up maybe some people will groan but in general because stand-up is uh, it, at its best a honed act that has been proven to work on human beings yeah presumably like that the chances are good you're going to be satisfied with your care right i, I was in, it, i was in the room for a mitch hedberg performance before my daughter was born and we still went places and his he did not arrive everybody knows mitch hedberg and that's you know that uh that style that he has you know what i'm talking about right mm -hmm. it's like escalator you know <laughs> escalator out sorry for the convenience you know kind of an updated stephen wright in some ways but you could he was so good he was not like high he was performing at a at a very high level, maybe in a similar way, some ways to like a Sam Kinison or something. But I do agree with you, and I I think on two levels. First of all, you go oh grown improv. That's exactly the kind of thing my friend in college would invite me to. Um, second, it it deserves that reputation. Most of the, all of the improv I saw in the eighties and nineties was absolutely excruciating because it was very heavy on all the things that make people hate improv, like. You, John Syracuse, does anybody love toilet and dick jokes more than me? I love it. But when you're doing that in improv, it is, it is, unless you know what you're deploying, it is so cheap and so cringy. That self-same friend, Tony, of Sausage Night, we went and saw some improv in Sarasota. We sat in the back row. I wish you could see my face. Imagine that rictus of like the cringe emoji, but also kind of going, kind of <laughs> like it was... It was so bad, and we were in the back of the room. We couldn't leave, and every single thing was like it was honestly, it was honestly stuff like okay, like I'm gonna need to know the name of a sex toy, a pizza topping, and and a black man or something. And you'd be like, what? What? And then heavy on all that BS college campus stuff, and totally light on the listening to other people and the and the dynamicism. So I think there's a reason people hate improv. It's most of it's terrible. Like 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 poetry in America. When I mean, when when stand up goes bad, people might feel angry and and whatever. But when when improv is not going well, a lot of people can empathize with the people in an uncomfortable like, way. You, you say and goes just, wrong, you mean like it's not working out, and they don't yeah, seem to have a hand. It's not working. It's just like you don't even want to be there. But also importantly, though, John, they don't have a handle on what they can make out of what just went wrong. Yeah. They, and then you end up digging in, and that's why that the, the bit on the office with Michael Scott is so funny. Because he's so committed. He's, he comes into this improv class. I think it's a great scene. But he comes into it really wanting to be good at this. He's Michael Scott, obviously. And he comes in with what he thinks is, what does he call it, like an unbeatable idea. Which is every in improv scene should involve him like menacing someone with a gun. 
And it's so funny on so many levels because it's what terrible people in improv do that makes it terrible. It's also a very funny scripted scene that I'm guessing probably started with some improvs. Uh, and, and then what, what they end up with is just <laughs> an indictment of everybody who does comedy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, speaking of cringe, like the office humor and other things like, you know, cringe humor that uh, phrase has been coined, even for scripted shows where some people feel uncomfortable even watching that, even though it's not improv, like it's, it's, you know, it's a scripted show, but, but like, because the humor value comes from a situation that would make you uncomfortable if you were seeing it in real life, you, you're uncomfortable on behalf of the person mm-hmm. that some people don't like that. All this is to say that, you know, you hear us talking about this, we'll put links in the show notes to all these things, the the Michael Scott bit and the, the improv special. I Improv requires you to bring with you the things that you just described. Like if you're just going to watch it and lay back and say, entertain me, like make me laugh with your joke em ups. Um, yeah. yeah. You have to. Look, I mean, like with with much respect, you're, you're like when you know when you see one of the six, seven, eight, eighty nine Jeff Dunham specials that exist, you know what you're in for. If you're going to see Larry the Cable Guy, you know what you're in for. Now, in, in both cases, not my not my kind of humor, but very professional and like they know what they're doing. You know what what you're in for, and you know how, you will know very quickly if they're succeeding because are they doing the thing that I saw on Netflix? And and, and it doesn't require you to have like metacognition like the thing you just described about thinking about what's going on and appreciating what's happening not just like the words on the page that if you were to transcribe them oh they made a funny right Mm -hmm. but everything else that's going on in the performance and if you are not engaged at that getting back to the top of the seed that was planted earlier if you are not engaged in the performance at that meta level yeah you will not extract all the meat from the buffalo or whatever and you may end up thinking this was a waste of my time i don't like this I'm not laughing and I'm not enjoying it because if you just sit there and wait for it to wash over you, you will miss half of what there is potentially to be extracted. Well, yeah, you're already, you're already going to, you're going to be, if not lost, at least, um, missing a lot. Um, also, boy, this is going to be the most ambitious uh, pivot of the show. You ready for this? Um, Mm -hmm. the other thing is related to the movie topic. How do you put this? How do you, how do you, I mean, Facets, right? How do you, how do you decide that something that this uh, Rotten Tomatoes one hundred movie and this Rotten Tomatoes one hundred movie, like you know, are, are, why are they both like that, or why aren't they like this? Why don't they get this rating? That's because there there is an absolutely uh, ineffable quality, and I'm going to put it very poorly. What part of your brain is this scratching? Is another way. So maybe alongside attention, maybe alongside all those other things, what part of your brain do you want scratched tonight? Now maybe you don't want your brain scratched at all, and you want somebody to just, you know, uh, lavish you with, with, uh, <laughs> with, uh, with a personal massage of comedy. Um, but you, you totally nailed it. it because with improv, you know, you think about like a lot of programmer jokes are like, are like improv, not in how they're made or how they're done, but in what part of your brain they tickle. Think about different kinds of puzzles. Different kinds of puzzles are fun or not fun or stimulating or not stimulating because they tickle a given part of your brain. I really, I mean, this, I suddenly, this, this theory makes a ton of sense to me. And what, what we're talking about here with improv, though, is like, it's going to be it's going to be funny. I mean, there's a lot that's funny just on a first order kind of like, well, it's the way that they interviewed those people. And like, why is that guy talking about the wedding instead of these two people that are in the wedding? And they're very quick about that. Great timing, of course. But what part of your brain do you want tickled? And, and that and to, to get to a very long ago point, why this episode of this show? I've seen all three 
many, many times of these episodes of this show. It's this one that I felt like captures, well, it's the one that's the most special in terms of why this stuff is special. This is the best illustration, uh, if I were recommending this to other people, which I am, but why am I recommending it? Because this one tickles my brain in the weirdest way. This is the one that most requires me to pay so much attention. How am I laughing harder each time? Now, when I, now, uh, when I, when I uh, leave the room, I, I, say, I say goodbye, sweet Jason. And, and she says, he's just a little boy. And that's still funny to me. It's still funny now. Um, but, you know, what part of your brain do you want tickled? Yeah, there's an angle on this that actually relates to what I'm always talking about with video games and that mm-hmm. you, have to, you have to bring some part of yourself to, I mean, mm. it's obvious with games, you have to actually right. use the controller. And why you say right? to me, but, like, don't watch the YouTube video, like, put the controller in your hands. Right. And, 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 you know, and the thing about improv, uh, and it's also gets back to why very often people say, oh, I don't like improv, but they go to a live one and they enjoy it. It's because when you're live, part of just the experience of being in the audience causes you, causes most people to engage with it more fully, to be more participatory, because you like, you're literally in the room, like just human nature, like, well, there, it's not like I'm at a TV and I can just scowl and, and leave the room. There's another human being up there and I'm, I'm motivated by societal, <laughs> you know, just the way we function <laughs> right. to, I'm going to engage. And I, I got, I got dressed. I went out, we did all the thing. We paid for the tickets. We're sitting in the seats. You are ready to put way more of yourself into that than if you heard someone mention some improv thing on a podcast that's not supposedly on Netflix. You're like, oh, I guess I'll look at this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, If you saw that same thing in person, you would have a profoundly different experience because you would be much more prepared to give it the kind of engagement that you need to give it to get literally anything that's out. That's a really good right? point. I, I always felt that way about um, orchestral music or any kind of like, you know, violins, horns, whatever it is. Like, you know, it's one thing to listen to something like Ode to Joy, but to be in the room when it's happening is, it's hard to explain, but it's physically overwhelming. When you hear a really, really big uh, piece or a classical piece live, it's overwhelming. And and like, so I hear you saying like, okay, well, you're like out of some kind of weird, you know, human convention. We do feel like we should pay attention to what's happening on stage. We did pay for this. There's also that thing of like, um, you know, they say people go to NASCAR for the accidents or hockey for the fights. I, th- I feel like it's hopefully not that way with improv <laughs> because you're really pulling for them. And when they fail, like you're with them. You, you, everybody up there is their own underdog. And like, you're really pulling for them. And, and it's live. Like on Netflix, yeah. it's already happened. You know, it's already right. happened. Yeah. You right? know, you know nobody it, dies. I mean, probably nobody dies, but regardless of what surprises are in store for you, you know it has already happened. When you're seeing it live, no one knows what's going to happen next. You are there seeing it in real time. Yes. And so that's that, again, makes you engage with them. Yes. And then and then that makes when they do find a way when they find a handle on that thing as it's falling and turn it into like uh, I mean, oh shoot, what's the one in um in Middle Ditch? Oh, there's one. It wasn't an error, but it's the one where like over halfway into it, you see John, you see um Schwartz making the face. He screws up his face and he looks at Thomas Middle Ditch and he says, "Thank you, Daddy." And it's the mm. stupidest line, but it's so funny because that's a callback to the like third sentence of the entire performance. So anyway, as the thing is falling, uh, as the knife is heading toward your foot, straight down, you grab that handle. And you turn that into something hopefully funny, but like you pause the right amount of time, you you wait to let that build for a minute because you're making the eye contact with others. They're going to pick up that you've got something good here. And then you bring the house down because everybody has been hoping you're going to be the Willie Mays of that bit. You're going to do a diving catch and they were there for it. And that's intoxicating. 
Yeah, half of my enjoyment of uh, watching that thing was looking at the audience reactions. The audience was pretty well lit, uh, yeah. not just because they performers occasionally go out and do it, but they show audience reaction shots. And the audience is loving this <laughs> performance, right? That's another mm-hmm. thing you can draw from these type of situations where it's like, even if improv isn't your thing, you can tell you can tell that it, you if you watch this Netflix thing and you don't laugh at all and you hate it and you think it's terrible. Yeah. You, I think you can still tell that if you were in that room, you yeah. would have enjoyed it. Right. Because it's not yeah. like just five weird people in the audience that are their friends are laughing. They're the audience loves it like they're killing. Like if you were there, you would enjoy it. There's there, there's something very I mean, like, boy, I don't I really don't want to bring the room down because this has been a very fun episode for me. But um, I mean, there's a reason that Trump likes doing those rallies. And there's a reason the people that go to those rallies like being there. It, and it's the same reason you want to be there uh, at uh, the Yankee baseball stadium when they come when well okay i'm not going to be funny when mariano rivera comes out and he saves that game like you knew he could do and it's one thing to watch that on tv i've seen mariano rivera throw some amazing stuff on tv i've never been in the room but like you you understand why each of those instances they're all i think very different in terms of content and audience hopefully it is hoped, but uh, but what they do all have in common is you try to tell your friends, hey, you know, you had to be there. You're like, what do you mean I had to be there? I, pfft, I've got I've got the uh, I've got the high quality Agvorlis of that fish show. Why did I need to be there? And it's like, well, I mean, like if you weren't there, you won't understand it because <clears throat> you know it's it's just that when you're there, you are the audience is part of the show. It really is, and here literally, it's their stories that turn into this. But yeah, you know, I totally agree with you. I hope we get to go go to theater things again someday. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a shame that they'll never have comedy shows again, but it's good while it lasted, right? Yeah, my daughter's never had a cat sit on her awkwardly. <laughs>